But now with the time at two o'clock, it's time for Discovering Music. And this week, Stephen Johnson looks at Ravel's ballet, Mother Goose. The programme was recorded earlier this year at the City Halls in Glasgow. Part of Ravel's Mother Goose Suite, Ma Mère Leuille. It also occurs in the ballet, Ravel Based on the Suite. My thanks there to the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra and our conductor today, Baldur Brunimann. Well, listening to those extraordinary orchestral colours just now, those wash of string trills and harp, the piccolo tune, that spray of woodwind, cymbal, horn suddenly unmuted at the end, it's hard to imagine that that sound world could have come to Ravel in any other way. Surely he must have conceived it like that absolutely for the orchestra. After all, he was a great master of writing for the orchestra. But no, it seems that Ravel thought of that music first in a rather different kind of way. And this is where we bring in our two pianists today, Julia Lynch and Judith Keeney, to give an example of how that music sounded the first time Ravel wrote it down. the same music and yet it isn't. The notes are obviously the same but the colours are completely different. Well that's how Ravel first wrote Mother Goose as a set of five movements for two children friends, two young players who were friends of his and the children in this case were called Mimi and Jean Gobetsky. The adult Mimi wrote a rather enchanting memoir of what it was like to have Ravel as an uncle and especially as a provider of music and this is what she said. There are few of my childhood memories in which Ravel does not find a place. Of all my parents' friends, I had a particular fondness for Ravel because he used to tell me stories that I loved. I used to climb on his knee and indefatigably he would begin Once Upon a Time. And it would be Ledronette or Beauty and the Beast or the adventures of a poor tiny mouse that he made up just for me. And I used to laugh uproariously at these and then feel guilty because actually they were quite sad. Now, I'll come back to that last remark about the sad element in Ravel's story later on. But one thing stands out in the middle of what she says when she talks about how Ravel told those stories. Indefatigably, he would begin once upon a time. Now, when Ravel made a ballet from the five movements of the suite, he didn't just orchestrate them. He added a little introduction and links linking the movements together to make a continuous story. And he takes a figure from the very ending of the piano duet suite that becomes a key element in those introduction and links. It's the triumphant ending, which in its original form sounds like this.
Well, there's one key element in there in the midst of all those glittering scales. I'll ask Judith, would you pick out what you're playing in the right hand at that point? You'll hear that blazoned out by the full orchestra with a magnificent tinsel of colouring surrounding it at the end of the performance today. What Ravel did at the beginning of the suite was to take that little figure and turn it into a kind of musical introduction, almost like he's saying in music, once upon a time. It certainly seems to prepare the mood for the musical stories that we hear in something like the same way as that time-hallowed phrase. The first time we hear it, it's followed by all sorts of magical orchestral sounds. You'll hear distant muted fanfares, maybe suggesting knights and castles, eerie string harmonics, rustling trills and strange bird calls, maybe suggesting enchanted forests. This is the point in the ballet at which the storyteller is, as it were, opening the book of fairy tales and beginning to tell the stories. So there we have it, that little da-dee-da-da, Ravel's Once Upon a Time musical theme, followed each time by a rich scent of orchestral images. It's as though Ravel's saying to Mimi as he's telling the stories, well, which story do you want to hear this time? First of all, we hear some bird calls, which obviously relate to the tale of Tom Thumb, as we'll hear later in this program. And the next time we hear that Once Upon a Time on the clarinet and horns, there are two figures that appear. First of all, the Pavan of the Sleeping Beauty, and then, after the next Once Upon a Time on clarinet and bassoons, we'll hear a solo double bass playing the theme of the beast in Beauty and the Beast.
That's a beautiful bit of scene setting. It's really quite exquisite. But Ravel doesn't just now proceed straight to the first of his musical stories, the movements from that original Mother Goose suite. The first one we hear is the Pavan of the Sleeping Beauty. But Ravel adds an extra dance before that to tell, as it were, the kind of story about how it was that the Sleeping Beauty got into her predicament, because the Pavan itself is about a procession of mourning for the princess who stabs her hand on her spinning wheel, and as a result of a malign spell put on her, she falls asleep. You know those rather annoying and irritating things you sometimes get on programs like ER or other American documentaries where you have a voice on the beginning that says, previously on this program. Well, what Ravel is doing at this stage is having a kind of previously on Mother Goose moment. He's telling us the story of how it is that the princess came to be asleep in the first place. You hear the moment where she stumbles against her wheel, pricks herself, and then collapses, falls unconscious to the horror of her attendants. Another little appearance of the Once Upon a Time theme at the end. It's like Ravel, as it were, commenting on the story we've heard so far. And now follows the Pavan. It's lovely enough in the original piano version, but now that we hear it framed by the larger story, it's even more moving. In the original version, it was very simple, obviously written for two very young players and not putting their techniques to the test so much. Just two simple lines played by two hands. But in the orchestral version, this becomes quite exquisite in its scoring. We have a solo flute, a muted horn, and some discreet pizzicatos, plucked notes from the violas. Few composers can do delicate like Ravel when it comes to orchestration. And that's very much the case in the movement that follows, which is the tale of Beauty and the Beast. Now, Ravel doesn't need to add a kind of extra drama to frame this movement because it tells the story well enough on its own. At the beginning, it's a waltz tune that we hear first. And this waltz tune is very clearly associated with Beauty herself. I think that's quite clear enough when you hear it in the original piano duet version.
now we'll hear the orchestral version. You hear how it comes to a kind of an extra kind of life in Ravel's version, as though Ravel's added another dimension of color and delicacy to that piano writing. And I think in the process, he's really sketched out just what sort of person beauty is. I think it's pretty clear from this orchestration that she's one of those impossibly willowy girls with wispy blonde hair and a complexion like rose water, who have low flutes and harp harmonics alternating with soft chords and muted strings, a mellifluous clarinet solo in the background, all pretty clear when it comes to portrait painting. She's clearly a kind of fairy tale princess, a little girl's pin-up. But the beast theme is what we hear next, and this is very clear in Ravel's scoring. It's certainly clear enough in the original piano version. Ravel gives the theme for the beast to the second player in the duet, the lower player, and he puts it in the left hand, so that played by a child, it has a slightly awkward, ungainly quality. But in the orchestral version, it really flowers, because he gives it to the contrabassoon. Now, solos for contrabassoons are pretty rare, but this is one of the classic contrabassoon solos. A special opportunity for our contrabassoon player, Peter Wesley. Then, at the end of this movement, comes the great moment of magic, the transformation of the beast into a handsome prince. Now, in the original piano duet version, Ravel asks for a long upward glissando on the piano, which is one of the very few moments where it seems that he forgot that he was writing for young players, because young Mimi Godevska complained that this always used to make her fingers bleed. What happens in the duet version is that the top player of the duet plays the beast theme high up, so that it sounds much stronger and more confident. But inevitably, in the orchestral version, that glissando becomes much more naturally and inevitably a harp glissando, as our harpist Helen Thompson will demonstrate in a moment. And this is followed by the transformation of the beast theme itself. From the contrabassoon's low growl, it becomes an exquisite high violin solo. Played in harmonics, you'll see our leader, Bernard Doherty, is just slightly touching the string with his fingers. It gives that kind of ghostly, ethereal effect. And then, just in case that sounds a little too, shall we say feminine, we have a more masculine sound on the solo cello, the same theme. But there's still that magical aura around of the harp and the flute, and at the end, much divided ethereal muted strings.
clearly a happy ending. But it doesn't seem that the next story in this collection of fairy tales does have a happy ending. This is the story called Petit Pousse, or the English equivalent would be Tom Thumb. Now we really do get close to Mimi Godebska's comment that she made at the end of that reminiscence about Ravel. I used to laugh uproariously at Ravel's stories and then feel guilty because they were actually quite sad. That does seem to be a kind of underlying thread linking some of the stories, in, indeed if not all the stories in this collection. We have the sleeping beauty who through no fault of her own falls into a kind of living death as a result of a malign spell. We have the sadness of the beast, imprisoned in his own ugliness and only liberated at the end of that story. Now we have the tale of a tiny man who goes out walking in the forests, and he leaves a trail of breadcrumbs to lead him home. But the birds eat the breadcrumbs, and he's unable to find his way back. Now, as in the piano version, the orchestral version begins with a wandering figure in thirds, this time on the strings. But you'll notice as it goes along that it's constantly changing beats per bar. First of all, we have 2-4, then 3-4, then 4-4, then 5-4. So it's a kind of meandering, circling, lost kind of movement, suggesting Tom Thumb wandering in the woods, trying to find the track of the crumbs that he's lost. And on top of it is a lamenting tune on the oboe, which really captures the mood of this sad little story rather well. It's difficult to say whether the piano or the orchestral version is more effective at that stage, but later on, Ravel's orchestration really does show how when he came to rearrange this music for orchestra, he enriched some of his original ideas. We have a portrait of the birds that eat Petit Pousset's breadcrumb trail. It's difficult to know from this whether they're innocent or knowing birds. This is the bird song that we hear in the piano version. bird call and a cuckoo underneath. That sounds relatively innocent. But when Ravel came to orchestrate that passage, he seems to have changed his mind about those birds. Perhaps they really do know what they're up to. They sound rather more sinister in this version. First of all, the first sound is marked mezzo forte now instead of pianissimo in the original. And we have a steely high glissando on the solo violin. So that sounds a little closer to Hitchcock territory, doesn't it? <laughs> and after that comes the cuckoo on the flute, which is more or less what you'd expect. But there's a high flutter-tongue trill on a piccolo at the top of it and two solo violins adding high trills, plus an amazing cascade of harmonics as the first violins slide their fingers lightly up and down the strings. It really does add a different quality entirely to this kind of bird song. Now, if you put those transformed orchestral birdsong figures on the top with Petit Pousset's lost little meandering figure underneath on bassoon and violas, it really does give a rather poignant portrait. The birds sound fantastic and bizarre, even not a little menacing.
Well, this time there's no comforting happy ending. It ends with Tom Thumb still lost, apparently, in the woods and wandering around after his trail disappeared. But now we come in the fifth movement in the ballet to the music that we heard at the very beginning of the programme. It's called L'Edronette, Empress of the Pagodas, which is not quite what it seems, that title. In Ravel's story, pagodas are a race of strange beings, and their empress, her name L'Edronette, means something like Little Ugly. So again, we're getting back to one of the figures that we have recurring in this ballet, ugliness, smallness. There's an element of alienation at the back of this. And if that seems to spoil the fairy tale element, don't forget that little Mimi recognized that deep sadness in Ravel's stories as a child. But there's one point I didn't make about the music we heard at the beginning of the program. When you play it on the piano duet, the first 25 bars are entirely on the black notes on the keyboard. This makes up the oriental pentatonic scale. And if you leave kids with a piano for long enough, I'm sure most of you have noticed, they'll soon start picking out tunes on the black notes because it's much easier to make melodies that way that sound really nice. Julia, would you mind just sort of playing on the black notes for us a moment to give us a bit of a flavour of what it sounds like? Now, of course, you don't get quite the same effect on the orchestra because most of the instruments of the orchestra don't have black notes and white notes in the way of a keyboard. But there is one keyboard in Ravel's orchestration, and that is that little music box over there called the Celeste. I mean, it really does actually sound like a child's music box. It's particularly familiar, associated with the dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy from Tchaikovsky's ballet The Nutcracker. On the Celeste, here you have that five fingers playing on the black notes effect exactly as you would get on the piano. So this is obviously something that Ravel wanted to retain, the idea of a child trying out tunes on the keyboard, and at the same time, that kind of music box idea. So it becomes a kind of double image of childhood innocence. In the background, again, Ravel weaves more of those fabulous clouds of color. We've got harp harmonics and glissandi, quiet gong strokes, timpani playing very quietly, xylophone playing even more quietly, and rustling strings. You'll notice that this time they, the strings play with the bows high up on the fingerboard, so that it sounds a bit more disembodied, a kind of ghostly sound in the background. There's another fabulous linking passage, and then we come to the final movement of both the Mother Goose suite originally for piano duet and of the ballet. Once again, we hear that Ravel once upon a time figure on flutes and clarinet, and then the finale begins. This finale is called Le Jardin Férique, the fairy garden. And it's one of those depictions of a kind of paradise of happy endings as seen in a child's eyes. And in Ravel's finale and the choreography, all the characters in the early stories are brought together for a kind of group happy ending on the stage. But it's still emotionally complex as music. We still hear some of that sadness that Mimi Godebska observed even in this music. I'm often struck by how many people do hear a note of sadness in Ravel's music, despite his fastidious surface and his great care to ensure that there's nothing histrionic about his music. 
One thing that is rather interesting about what Ravel does in this orchestrated version that we hear in the ballet is the transformation of the character of the music. Now, both versions, both the piano duet original and the orchestral version, are marked long et grave, slow and serious. And in each case, Ravel gives the same metronome mark, which is crotchet equals 56. Now, the slight problem with the piano duet version is, of course, that pianos can't sustain tone. As soon as you play a note on the piano, it starts to die away. It's lovely on the piano, but unless you've played really well, you don't get quite that effect of singing that Ravel's long slurs in the original piano duet version suggest that this is what he wants. Thank you, Julia and Judith, for that. It's great fun to play, and it is very lovely in that form. But now hear it rescored for the full orchestral string section. It really does sing warmly now. And I wonder how many of you have noticed in the extracts that we've had so far that Ravel may ask the strings to perform all sorts of amazing magical effects, but so far in the ballet, he hasn't asked them to sing tunes, something that the strings are particularly good at, in their normal, most comfortable registers. So this effect of turning to the strings for traditional eloquence, long held back, is all the more powerful for being held back until this climactic moment. It really does blossom, that music played on the strings like that, doesn't it? And yet it seems, fascinatingly enough, even though it sounds as though it ought to have been written for the strings in the first place, that wasn't how Ravel first conceived it. It was the piano version that apparently came into his head first. And so, from that lovely beginning, Ravel builds to the magnificent apotheosis, and for the last time we hear the Once Upon a Time theme now sounded out for the full orchestra. A truly triumphant ending, perhaps in a way a vindication of the storyteller's art and his power to enchant, and of course of Ravel himself in that context. Well, in a moment or two, we'll hear a complete performance of Ravel's ballet, Mother Goose. But before that, we do have a couple of moments, so if anybody has any questions they'd like to ask, yes, over here. 
I wonder if you could put this piece into a bit of context in uh, Ravel's life and what he wrote before, what he wrote after, and particularly if there was anything that came between the piano version and the orchestral version. Yes. Um, the original Mother Goose suite for piano duet was written in 1908. Shortly after that came the orchestrated version, and then in 1911, when Ravel was 36, he made the complete orchestral ballet that we're going to hear today. So that puts it right in the middle of his composing career, right, almost exactly halfway through. It was obviously a key work for him, because I think in the process of writing what started out as a a minor little piece, a little divertissement, something to entertain a couple of children friends, he discovered something quite important. That this element of the ambiguity of feeling around childhood, of a sort of lost innocence on one side and something underneath that's dark and sad and maybe rather more complicated, was something that was a key element in many of his works, but this is the first time it really surfaces. And it's quite probable that without this experience he might never have gone on to have written that magical but at the same time rather disturbing opera about a naughty child, L'Enfant et les Sautillages. That piece as well possibly brings out something about Ravel himself, which might explain another aspect of this attachment to childhood. He himself was actually physically very small, remarkably small, and he was acutely aware of that all through his life. He, he seems to have tailored things in his life to fit with this in a way. He lived in a very small house and surrounded himself with lots of things connected with childhood. I think Mother Goose really is the key work in this respect. There is that element, as, as I said, of, at the beginning of him opening the storybook. He's not opening, just opening the storybook to tell children's stories. In a way, he's opening the storybook for a kind of revelation that I don't think we've had in his music up to this point, a self-revelation. Well, I think it's time now that we heard the complete ballet Mother Goose that Ravel wrote in 1911. Thanks first of all to our two pianists, Julia Lynch and Judith Keeney, for giving us a nice little insight into how Ravel originally conceived this music. But it's over now to the orchestra so that we can hear the fully-fledged orchestral incarnation of Mother Goose. It's played tonight by the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra, leader Bernard Doherty, conductor Baldur Bruniman. <laughs> 